Stands ikke din sjæls flugt. Bedrøv ikke det bedre i dig. Mat ikke din ånd ved halve ønsker og halve tanker. Spørg dig og hold ved at spørge, indtil du finder svaret. Til man kan have erkendt en ting mange gange, anerkendt den. Man kan have villet en ting mange gange, forsøgt den. Og dog først den dybe indre bevægelse. Først hjertets ubeskrivelige rørelse. Først den forviser dig om, at hvad du har erkendt, tilhører dig. At ingen magt kan tage det fra dig. Til kun den sandhed, der opbygger, er sandhed for dig. As a young man, I was seduced by Soren Kierkegaard. I was 20 years old. I was studying philosophy in a small college town in Montana, and I was unsure of who I was and what I was supposed to do with my life. And then I read Either Or, and everything changed. Do not interrupt the flight of your soul. Do not distress what is best in you. Do not enfeeble your spirit with half-wishes and half-thoughts. Ask yourself and keep on asking until you find the answer. For one may have known something many times, acknowledged it, one may have willed something many times, attempted it, and yet only the deep inner motion, only the heart's indescribable emotion, only that will convince you that what you have acknowledged belongs to you. I completely connected with this Dane from another century. Either or filled me with such confidence for the first time in my life, I felt that I was on the right track. I moved on to the other books. Fear and Trembling works on love, the concept of anxiety, repetition. I read all the edifying discourses, his strange sermons. I even contemplated a life of study dedicated to Kierkegaard until I realized I'd have to learn Danish. Stens ikke den sjælsflugt. Bedrøv ikke det bælte af det. Mat ikke den an. Hvad helve ønsker af helve tanker. Spar dig. My favorite Kierkegaard book of all time is Stages on Life's Way. It's kind of the sequel to Either Or, but with a bonus section. Whereas the first book gives us Kierkegaard's theory of the aesthetic and the ethical ways of living life, Stages on Life's Way adds a third, the religious stage. Now, I've read this book many, many, many times but I've never been able to make sense of what he's talking about when it comes to the religious stage. I always assumed it would come to me later in life with experience, but I'm 37 years old now, and I'm starting to get worried. Like, what if it just never happens? So this summer, I got the opportunity to visit Copenhagen, and I figured I could sneak into the Kierkegaard Research Center posing as a journalist doing a story on Kierkegaard and get some help from the experts. The religious stage is is complicated for many reasons. It has two levels, uh, A and B. Uh, A, religiousness A, is the Socratic It sort of religiosity. And the B uh, section uh, is dealing with Christianity. Joachim Garf is one of the scholars at the research center. He wrote this big book on Kierkegaard that for some reason caused a controversy in Denmark when it came out a few years ago. You were not allowed to read him aesthetically, and you're not allowed to read him biographically. And I did both. Not in order to provoke, but to me there is this very dramatic tension between the, the writer and the private person. The connections between Kierkegaard's private life and his writings are so obvious, it just makes no sense how a Kierkegaard scholar could be controversial for pointing them out. It must be some Danish thing that I just don't get. I mean, the most famous part of Either Or, where Johannes seduces and breaks off an engagement with a girl named Cordelia? Everyone knows that Kierkegaard wrote this just after he broke off his own real-life engagement with Regina Olsen. And in Stages on Life's Way, there's another diary written by a man who also breaks off an engagement. And Garf told me Kierkegaard has this guy quote the actual letter that he wrote to break with Regina Olsen, word for word. In his book, Garf makes many connections between Kierkegaard's life and his various pseudonymous characters. But he also wants us to understand that they're not just his pen names. Kierkegaard wants us to learn about his ideas from his characters. Kierkegaard has a theory, in a way, uh, about these uh, stages, but he doesn't speak about it as a theory of stages. But, but he has these dominant uh, figures that represent different perspectives on life. Mary and you will regret it. 
do not marry and you'll also regret it. Whether you marry or you do not marry, you'll regret it either way. Laugh at the stupidities of the world and you'll regret it. Weep over them and you'll also regret it. Whether you laugh at the stupidities of the world or you weep over them, you'll regret it either way. That's one of the aphorisms written by a character known simply as A. He's one of Kierkegaard's most famous aesthetic characters and my personal favorite. He is the, the modern romantic type. He is a very ironic type. He is a very distant person that suffers from, from spleen and uh, he doesn't have a, a steady job and he is uh, more or less in a, in a permanent drift. Hang yourself and you will regret it. Do not hang yourself and you will also regret it. Whether you hang yourself or do not hang yourself, you will regret it either way. This, gentlemen, is the quintessence of all the wisdom of life. Kierkegaard's aesthetic characters are the ones that seduced me. I didn't just understand them, I identified with them. This is how, after graduating college, I ended up on the East Coast, living in this unheated basement apartment, writing and drawing these ridiculous little mini-comics about love and philosophy. I even had my own Kierkegaardian name, Zero Benjamin, because, you know, zero means both everything and nothing, or something like that. But I actually tried to convince the people I sent my comics to that this was my real name, like cartoonist Tim Kreider. I assumed that Zero was your real name from the get-go. I mean, it is a name, isn't it? Wasn't Zero Mostel actually named Zero Mostel? My friend Tim's a real hoarder, and he still has all the comics and letters I sent to him from this time, my testament to the aesthetic stage of life. Dear Tim, how the hell are you? I finally got the whole story on the twin makeout session. Dig. I was kissing and feeling them both, but Megan quit, and I locked myself with Jade in one of the bedrooms. Well, Megan busts in, and I turn to her, direct quote according to Megan, but I do not recall. Hey, what are you doing? I'm about to go down on your sister. Woo-hoo-hoo. I am such a fucking moron. So, Tim, why do women exist? There are a lot of exclamation points after that. I am having financial problems still, but I'm working on it. Uh, I believe this letter is coming to a close because the handwriting is deteriorating rapidly. I am so drunk I can't get my shoes off. I guess that's it. That's all, folks. Tomorrow I'm going to work at this tea shop for this lady. Too bad I don't even know how to make tea, so I guess I should go to bed. Heart ZB. You better stop by and visit before I saw my head off. The end. This went on for a few years, but eventually I gave up on the pseudonyms and the comics, and eventually I moved out of the unheated basement apartment. And eventually, I end up living with a girl. And then, one night, I'm laying on the new couch, this couch that had to be hoisted into the apartment by crane, and she's setting up the drawing rack in front of the bookshelf. And I can see my Kierkegaard books with their colored spines peeking out at me between her bras and panties. And all of a sudden, it's like, bang! I realize I am living in the ethical stage. And when I, as a married man, rest my head on her shoulder, I'm not a critic who admires or sees the lack of some earthly beauty, nor am I an infatuated youth who celebrates her bosom, but nevertheless I am as deeply moved as the first time. For I know what I knew and what I'm repeatedly convinced of, that there within my wife's breast beats a heart quietly and humbly, but steadily and smoothly. And I know it beats for me and my welfare, and for what is mutually ours. Judge William, he's um, the ethical person. He's a married uh, man, he has two kids, and he's uh, working in the, in, in the court. He is uh, addressing himself to this esteem in, in order to be his uh, educator in a way. I really tried to open my heart to Judge William, but the writings are dull and pedantic. They're actually called Reflections on Marriage. And so, one night after the girl and I have this nasty row over whether or not the closet in the kitchen should be painted or wallpapered, it hits me that if Kierkegaard really believed this marriage crap, then he would have gotten married himself. And I realize I can't find the answers I'm looking for in Judge William because the answers 
aren't there. Kyoko is is uh, well aware that you you should try to to get hold of your reader and try to to lead your reader to certain ideas and certain positions and certain conflicts. Of course, I didn't tell my girlfriend that I left her because I was on a quest to live out Kierkegaard's religious stage, but it's true. Once again, I was seduced by Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is a very seductive uh, author. His style, his rhetoric, his ideas, his way of addressing himself to to the reader is is seductive. And his idea is that that one should be uh, taken through the aesthetic uh, stage and up to the uh, ethical uh, stage and from that uh, further on to the religious. Now, as I said, I've read Stages on Life's Way many, many, many times, but I've never been able to make sense of the religious section of the book. The section is mostly made up of diary entries from another young man. This one is found at the bottom of a lake. But unlike the seducer's diary from either or, it's really not fun to read. The diary is like a blog written by someone who can't afford a psychiatrist. It's like DIY therapy, totally and completely impenetrable. It's a very, very sad <laughs> diary in a way. It's a very, very um, dramatic and it's a very alarming uh, diary because uh, we have this uh, writer who again and again returns to some very painful reflections and in a way it's far too much. <laughs> and and uh, maybe that's that's uh, a part of the, the, the idea in the in the diary that, that Kierko reflects so enormously that the reader should say, well, enough is enough. I should try to live my own life. I, sh- I should try to get rid of that way of self-reflection and self-relation, uh, which is a very painful uh, discourse. So that might be uh, a way of reading it, that, that the, the book simply wants to, 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 to push the, 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 the reader away. And that's the closest I got to Jochen Garf giving me the secret to the religious stage. But to be fair, it was incredibly foolish of me to think that I could get a quick and easy answer from him. I've read enough Kierkegaard to know better than that. In fact, one of the only things I am sure about in my quest is that it's supposed to get harder and harder. If there were one person whom I could turn to, I would go to him and say, Bitte, bitte. Put a little meaning for me into my confusion. To me, the most appalling meaning is not as appalling as meaninglessness. To tell you the truth, though, I don't know if the indirect answer is working for me anymore. I've kind of had it with all the clues and the hints. I need something a little more tactile, something I can put on my refrigerator or make my Facebook status. And this is why finding the religious stage is so important to me. I figure, just as he helped me earlier in life, Kierkegaard will come through for me now. This is why I kept pressing Garth for the answer. I'm sure I seemed ridiculous. But as he walked me out of the Kierkegaard Research Center, he did give me one last thing. Being desperate or being in despair in Kierkegaard uh, opens you to to the religious uh, life. I spent a week in Copenhagen. I walked many of Kierkegaard's favorite streets, and I visited the museum where they have some of his things on display. The most amazing thing I saw was the engagement ring that Kierkegaard gave to Regina Olsen. When she gave it back to him, he reset the stones in the form of a cross, and he wore this until his death. This image of Kierkegaard putting on his ring every morning before starting his work is what I see now when I think of the religious stage. And for some reason, this image fills me with incredible comfort and hope.
I happened to be flipping channels one night and caught a PBS documentary called Miss America. And, um, you know, sort of caught it halfway through the documentary and started watching it and um, became interested in the subject of beauty pageants in general as a, you know, subject for further research. I actually ordered the documentary and they sent it to me and as I, I watched it again and then I, I went online and started just seeing if I could find other documentaries or books or, you know, theoretical writing about, some kind of, you know, in-depth writing about um, beauty pageants. And uh, I stumbled upon a child beauty pageant website called the Universal Royalty Beauty Pageant. I thought, what's that? <laughs> and that's where it all started. Susan Anderson spent years taking photographs of child beauty contestants. Her book is called High Glitz, and her pictures are total spectacle, shock, and awe. And while these overly made-up miniature Miss Americas might seem ubiquitous today, when she began her project, Anderson says these girls were more on the margins of our national consciousness. When I started this in 2005, um, you know, Little Miss Sunshine hadn't come out yet. Uh, there were no reality shows about child pageants. I mean, obviously, um, the JonBenet Ramsey case had happened in 96, so that had been sort of in the past. I prefer not to even say her name because I think it's bad luck, and like I said, re- may she rest in peace, and that's not, that really had nothing to do with my pursuing this subject in the first place. I just had good timing. I, wa- I wanted to do my own personal project, so I was kind of looking for something, and this just hooked me right away. It was like a lightning bolt. I thought, oh, here, I can go to these pageants. Um, I've, 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 you know, I've been doing beauty and fashion photography and stuff like this, and anytime you, you do like a, a fashion shoot or a beauty thing or something with models, you've got hair and makeup people, you've got wardrobe people, and as a photographer, you spend half your time standing around waiting for hair and makeup to get ready. And then by the time they get everything done, you're like, oh, I've got 10 minutes to photograph the model, you know. (laughs) Somehow it always, the photographer always gets jipped out of the time. So I thought this will be great because I'll go to these events. The girls will already be in hair and makeup. I mean, I didn't do, you know, people always ask me and I like to make sure people understand, you know, these photographs were taken on site at the pageants while they were happening. I had nothing to do with how the hair and makeup or anything looked. I didn't even have anyone fix up the hair and makeup before I took the photographs. I mean, they're really taken in the moment between either the girl is going on stage or she's just come off the stage. She's waiting to go, you know, perform or she's just completed performing and she's going to change into her next outfit. And my studio is set up in the lobby of the hotel that's adjacent to the ballroom where the pageant itself is taking place. I was more like a vendor at the pageant. So I would be out in the lobby and there would be someone selling t-shirts and there would be someone selling, you know, sparkly outfits or toys or whatever. The photographs, I mean, while they're, you know, they're portraits of these girls, they're also portraits of these girls portraying somebody else. And I'm not sure who that somebody else is or where it's channeled from. And yet you can still see like there's this this five-year-old personality kind of, you know, coming through in the eyes, but everything else is this sort of illusion that's created with cosmetics and hair extensions and wig pieces. One of my favorite photographs is of a girl called Jacqueline, and she's got go-go boots on and this kind of 60s, uh, you know, Nancy Sinatra kind of outfit, and she owned that moment. I mean, she convinced, I mean, if I didn't know better, she was Nancy Sinatra in 1960, you know, at that particular moment, which I thought was incredible, amazing, and fantastic. And she probably did the same for the judges. Normally, as a photographer, you say, okay, stand like this, pose like this, do this, give me this expression, you know. And, um, you know, we're kind of control freaks in that way as photographers, <laughs> we can be. But in this case, they say, how would you like to be photographed? And then they sort of start doing their thing. And then maybe I would say, oh, I'd like to see the back of the dress, or I'd like to see you in profile, because, you know, obviously there's, there's profile shots, there's shots of the back of the head where I showed the hair, and I think they were probably a bit confused why I'd want to photograph the back of their head. But when you see the, the hairstyles, you understand that they're like works of art. So I just tried to cover every inch and every angle of the best aspects of the, co- of the costumes, while also allowing some room for the girls to express themselves and pose and do part of their routine. There's like a very fixed routine. I mean, these girls are very young, so it's not as though, you know, they're they're just learning how to kind of be up in front of people. I mean, this is all very overwhelming, I'm sure, for a small kid, you know. So it's like when they're on stage, there's like a 
there's like some, some marks on the floor. They have X's in certain places on the stage. And they're supposed to do, there's certain kinds of feet work that they do, footwork or, or sort of, you know, walks that they're taught to do that have different names. So it's kind of like a dance routine in some way. You'll hear these words, you know, big eyes, pretty feet, big hand. You know, there's all these sort of these sort of buzzwords that you know they must be trained. You know, make sure your eyes are wide open and make sure your teeth are. You know, you've got your your smile is as big as it can possibly be. And they're so focused on all these all these details of how they look. There's all these kind of rules and regulations if you want to win the pageant. There's not like a master website where you can go and like type in a girl's name and see, you know, who's the top pageant winner in the country in child pageants or anything like this. You have to kind of do a lot of digging and researching. But I had a, an exhibition in Amsterdam as, in January of this year, 2009, in fact, my first exhibition with this work. And a magazine there wanted to publish some photographs and they asked me, what titles do they hold? You know, and I was like, oh, gee, I don't know. Let me see if I can find out. So I started like doing some Google searching and looking and I found that a lot of the girls that I photographed, the ones who have, who made it to the book and who are the, the girls whose pictures I'm showing in my exhibitions are actually big pageant winners, which makes sense. You know, the cream rises to the top. They jumped off the page for to me for some reason. And a lot of them really are, you know, the girls who are kind of shining in this world. And one of the first girls I photographed in Texas, I, I found like a declaration by the, the Texas legislature or something, and she'd won a teen pageant. I, when I photographed her, she was nine years old. And now she's like, I think, 12 or 13 probably. And she, uh, she'd won some like preteen kind of child pageant and was going to go to Washington, D.C. as a representative of the state of Texas. And I thought she's going to be a senator or something one day. You know, she's also on some website for some kind of... Uh, some kind of uh, program that helps you like focus your energy and, and you know memorize things better and I don't know I can't remember what it was but she's like an outstanding kid and it and she jumped off the page some of these girls just have charisma you know I mean some kids just have a natural um, ability to communicate and perform this I cannot explain and but but there was um, moments when I was photographing that just like seared themselves into my brain somehow and I literally would like close my eyes and say oh I remember that girl and I remember that particular expression or that particular moment where I had some kind of a connection with that girl you know and it was like in a purely or, or I got a sense of who she was or I felt a particular energy or something was communicated and inevitably when I when I printed those photographs and when people look at the photographs in the gallery they'll say oh my god this picture feels like this and they'll literally reiterate exactly how I felt the moment when I took the picture and that's something I can't really explain but all I know is that some kind of truth is being communicated with all this artifice and all this cosmetics and all this you know training and coaching and all this kind of thing something is coming through that not only I felt an experience at the moment I took the photograph but that other people when they see the picture on the wall reiterate to me from my perspective I really I really believe that you know um you know, Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson and uh, Christina Aguilera. These people got started in this world, you know, went on to the Mickey Mouse Club. Like, there's there's almost like this trajectory. I mean, I went to the Dixieland Dolls pageant and, and Justin Timberlake, who is now a big star, won a car in that pageant when he was a kid for his singing. So it's kind of a platform for, it's a venue for young kids to get in front of an audience and to perform and to possibly win award money or to get discovered, you know. So I don't think there's any lack of people who want to be stars. I think people want to be a star more than ever now. So this is one, one venue for them to get started.
this is Barry Gifford, and I'm the author of The Imagination of the Heart, which is the final episode in the saga of Sailor and Lula, Sailor Ripley and Lula Pace Fortune, which began with Wild at Heart almost 20 years ago now. So what made you decide to return to the story of Sailor and Lula? You know, we last saw them, I think, with the collection of novellas from also a long time ago, maybe 1993 or 1994. And I'm wondering why you decided to come back to the story. Did you feel that you needed to put, you know, the last chapter or a capstone on it? I don't know. One day I just began wondering now that, you know, Sailor had died at the end of the sixth and last one, Bad Day for the Leopard Man. What would Lula be doing now? Hmm. She was 80. And so it's Lula really uh, reflecting philosophically on you know, the events uh, that take place in the world and her place in it. Most everything I have to say is embodied in the Sailor and Lula novels. And I think Wild at Heart was kind of the thesis statement. And the most important thing is that true love you know, can endure. I believe in it absolutely. absolutely. I believe in these people, and I believe in Lula's intelligence above all. The flame is still burning with Sailor. I mean, they meant that much to one another. And I don't think there are too many love stories like this that, you know, that really exist. But I always believed in them. You know, it, it's sometimes disingenuous to say that characters take on a life of their own. But in my mind, in all the novels that I've read, written, in all the stories, Lula was always the strongest character. She always spoke uh, intimately and powerfully to me. And she was always the smart one, remember. Sailor was always kind of the lunkhead. He was always making the wrong decisions and, and you know, getting into jams and that kind of thing. And you know, Lula, who was just basically a kid when we started with them uh, in Wild at Heart, she was always the mature one. You could see her maturing. And then keeping Sailor on track after his couple of spells in prison and, and like that. You know, I mean, that's at the heart of all the Sailor and Lula novels, is really this business of loyalty and love. This is a big love story, the story of Sailor and Lula, and it continues... You know, in this case, in the imagination of the heart, even 15 years following Sailor's passing. And so I undertook to write her version of the events of her life and her life with Sailor and their son Pace and started in the form of a diary. And then, as usually happens, uh, she decides with her oldest and best friend, Beanie Thorne, who also appears at the beginning of Wild at Heart and later in Perdita Durango and elsewhere, uh, to go on one final road trip together. She's living now in North Carolina, which is her birthplace, and uh, they decide to go to New Orleans after Katrina. I guess it was really Katrina that uh, inspired me in this way because I had just been down there after the flood and, you know, the hurricane and the flood, and I had kept a place in New Orleans for eight years from 1990 to 1998 and spent quite a bit of time there as a child. So I was very much involved and felt very strongly about what had happened down there. And so I made her son, Pace, her and, and Sailor's son, uh, have a construction company rebuilding New Orleans post-Katrina. So she and Beanie go down there, and they have their adventures along the way. And Beanie, Beanie, her friend Beanie, was always a little nutty. She had been uh, institutionalized a couple of times in mental hospitals. She was uh, had many husbands. She was uh, always prone to going off the deep end in a certain way. But at the same time, she embodied a very particular wisdom. And Lula always listened to her. It was a kind of a crazy wisdom, if you will. And sometimes Beanie has insight, which was very helpful to Lula. And she was a very loyal friend, and nobody ever has enough of those. <laughs> when Lula and Beanie are on the road to New Orleans, they stop in 
Charleston, South Carolina. And they meet this young guy, uh, Epistrophe Train Taylor. That's train, T-R-A-N-E, like in John Coltrane. And Epistrophe, of course, is a tune written by Thelonious Monk. And he goes by the initials E.T. And uh, said that his uh, mother and father were jazz people, so they named him you know, after Monk and Coltrane. You know, he's an attractive kid, and Beanie, <laughs> you know, she still thinks she has sex appeal. She still thinks in this way. She's 80, almost 80, but she thinks like a, you know, a 20-year-old. She's never stopped thinking in that way. And really what happens is that they're interested in young people. And E.T. is an unusual guy who's, you know, been around the world. And uh, as he says, I've been reading this book I picked up in Atlanta, Why God Don't Need to Carry a Gun. Says people ought just listen to their inner voice so there can be peace in the world. So Beanie says, what's this inner voice saying? And he says, it's the Lord's message coming through his angels. A person's body is sort of a celestial radio station. You've got to get tuned into his frequency. And so they enjoy this kind of conversation all. And then, of course, E.T. goes on to get himself in some big trouble. Which, yeah, I don't want. Uh, I don't want to give it away. But Lula uh, and Beanie are are witness to. Lula does say to Beanie that if we promise me, Beanie, that if we we see a bad sign, we can turn back. And I, I they don't turn back. And and I have to say, this big trouble is clearly a bad sign. What 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 happens there? <laughs> well, I'm not going to give it away. I mean, the imagination of the heart is about having a, a certain kind of faith and faith in people. I don't mean in a in any kind of strict religious sense. But, you know, you have to bear witness to people. Mm. And you have to try to make some sense out of what happens in the world, even if it seems so random. That was always one of the themes of the Sailor and Lula novels. <laughs> but it also seems to go to, to all, your, all of your work, though, that these, these minor characters like E.T., these characters who pop up and then disappear quickly, you know, there's a major role, these characters play like E.T. or the woman who passes out and gets the tattoo, Vahida Doblez, I, I think her <laughs> name is. Yeah, the, the thing is that, you know, so many people are met on the fly, and you just pick up parts of their stories. I mean, it's like when Pace, uh, was a little boy, is kidnapped uh, in Sailor's Holiday uh, by Elmer Desse Pere, who's looking for the ideal friend. I mean, there's, there's real sincerity in these people, even if the people are a little tortured or twisted or worse. You know, the thing is that, yeah, sometimes people do bad things, but in fact they're capable of kindness, tenderness, generosity. It, people are complex. Yeah, yeah, but these characters, you know, when you take them all together, these, these people that are met on the fly, to use your phrase, I mean, mm -hmm. is, there, is there some connection that they all sort of share together? Well, everything's temporary, Benjamin. You know, we're all only here for a little while. It's not called the passing scene for nothing. And as far as the names are concerned of some of these characters, uh, I use these names to describe the character coming in. You know something about them. If there's a name like Perdita Durango, for example, this is a very strong and powerful name. And if you know that Perdita means loss or loser, and uh, you get a visceral effect from the names, whether it's Vahida Doblez or uh, Beanie Thorn, she's always a thorny character in that sense. And I don't mean that just for the sake of humor. You know, if you get sort of you know a bad guy, his name is Drifton Fark, appears in one of the novellas, and and all that. Well. You're supposed, this is supposed to send a message to you in a way. I don't waste any time. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of Sailor and Lula was that here were more or less two pure spirits, two pure products of America, and they're driving through the world, and, you know, all this junk is raining down on them and around them, but somehow, miraculously, at the center of the whole thing, uh, they stay together, they stay loyal to one another, uh... Jack Kerouac once said, America is just a Balzacian hive in a jewel point. It's a quote I always love to use, and I really thought of Sailor and Lula 
uh, as that jewel point, mm-hmm. really. And, you know, William Carlos Williams in his poem To Elsie said, the pure products of America go crazy. And, of course, all sorts of things happen to Sailor and Lula, enough to drive anybody crazy. <laughs> and the world is really crazy all around them. And to me, they were like a centerpiece of sanity. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell you something funny. When we were uh, making the film of Wild at Heart, when David Lynch was directing the film of Wild at Heart, and David had asked me to write the screenplay, and I said, well, I was too busy at that point. Uh, I was writing the next book in the series of Perdita Durango. I said, I'll be glad to do it when I'm finished with this. He said, no, no, we're going to make the movie now. We need it now. I said, well, you go ahead and write the screenplay. And uh, so on the set of the film, on the first day, I show up, and David said to me, had just sent me the shooting script. And I'd read it on the plane, I think, on the way down to L.A. the night before. And uh, he said, well, Barry, what do you think of the screenplay now? And I said, well, Dave, I like it just fine. I said, except you left out the most important line in the whole story. And he said, what? What do you mean? And I said, the part where Lula says this world is really wild at heart and weird on top. And he said, no. And so we're sitting at the table. Actually, Nick Cage and Laura Dern were with us. And David leaps through the screenplay. And he looks at me and he says, by golly, Barry, you're right. So somehow that had just been unintentionally left out. And what David did was really a brilliant thing. When he reinserted it into the screenplay... 80% of the dialogue, of course, is taken directly from the novel. He inserted it at the penultimate point of the movie, where Lula's in trouble, she's pregnant, she's in the uh, Hotel Iguana in West Texas, and Sailor's gone off with Bobby Peru to commit a crime, and, you know, things are going downhill, and she says this world is really wild at heart and weird on top in a very rueful way. In the novel, that statement appears as a thesis statement, more or less, at the beginning of the novel. But he placed it in the perfect place for the film. So it works in both contexts. I'm wondering if I could get you to read the coda, the end, the letter that uh, Beanie writes to Pace. It's pretty short, but it's, it's so lovely. Was... Well, Lula dies at the end of The Imagination of the Heart, which ends this saga... But after Lula passes away, uh, her friend Beanie Thorne writes a letter to Pace Ripley, Lula and Sailor's son, in New Orleans. Dear Pace, as upsetting as it is, we got no choice but to accept the fact of your mama's passing. I'm not certain she is in a better place. This is only my thought, not based on nothing, but face it, there ain't nothing can be proved even by science concerning an afterlife. I heard today on the radio that astronomers have dug up an old idea of Albert Einstein's called dark energy they now believe might be true after all, even though Einstein had decided it was his biggest mistake. This is a force in space he figured was an ugly form of gravity. He named the cosmological constant to explain a balance between the expansion of the universe and how certain stars are yanking on everything, causing all there is around us to expand, and dark energy is this invisible force. Believe it or not, Pace, I always was interested in this type of thinking, as I never have believed in God creating it all. I mean, there has to be a better answer. That's too easy, as is the Big Bang. Lula was my dearest friend, more than a sister for almost all our lives. And I considered her a powerful force of love, which is the biggest mystery after all, how she could keep on the way she did, being good and thoughtful of others without getting fooled too much. Now the dark energy come pulled her away from us, and I don't mean Satan, who is only an excuse exists in stupid people's minds. Lula's soul is swirling in space, part of the expansion of the universe, which is bigger for her having been and being. Love you, Beanie.
my name is Michael Holmes. I'm a ex-hospice nurse who has developed a passion for studying dying process and writing about dying process and trying to educate people about dying process. What typically happens in dying process is the social mask begins to dissolve. Our social mask is how we want people to perceive us, who we want them to perceive us to be. And it's not always, in fact, it's very seldom who we really are. And so very often it can be kind of surprising, uh, you know, what, who you find hiding behind the mask. That's one of the reasons why I really like spending time with dying people. As a cross-section of the general public, they're, they're probably one of the most honest, real group of people people you will ever meet. It's actually not unusual at all for uh, hospice nurses to be old intensive care nurses. It's uh, kind of a way for them to redeem themselves for everything they did in intensive care. You know, as an intensive care nurse, an awful lot of the things that you do, you know before you even start, aren't going to work. And that the only reason that you're doing them at all is because neither the patients and the families or the doctors um, have any realistic or want to be honest with one another about what's happening. I mean, you know, it's not unusual at all to have, say, for example, an 85-year-old man admitted to intensive care and he's obviously dying, has probably three or four different terminal diseases, but no one is willing to give up, yet no one there really thinks it's going to work. Um, and so after you see that over and over and over. I mean, I've saved lives in my time working in intensive care, lots of lives, but very few of them I, could I ever look back on and honestly say I thought in retrospect that it was a good idea. Every day almost on the news you'll hear some uh, science report or medical report saying that thus and such, you know, overeating or being overweight or smoking too much or whatever increases the mortality rate. Well, the mortality rate's 100%. It never changes one single bit. You know, nothing pushes the mortality rate up and down. It stays at 100%. The only question is when. After sitting down and talking with someone for a while, I could pretty accurately figure out how they were going to die, which then to me as a nurse who was helping take care of them was very useful because that allowed me to like set up a care plan for them and tip me off as to what to expect. When you're actually dying, trust me, one of the greatest fears you will have will be whether or not you will survive it. That is a huge fear when, when at some point during your dying process. And then in walk the hospice people announcing themselves to be the end of life people. Death is purposeful and meaningful and it is a growth experience. It teaches us how to live. It's about life. It's not the opposite of life. It's not the end of life. It is an aspect of life. The official world of hospice cannot support my work because it presumes life transcends death. And from their point of view, making that presumption is religious. And so in an attempt to not be, quote, religious, they just don't talk about it. It's just, you know, spirituality and, and whether life transcends death and so on and so forth is, is just the elephant in the living room that they don't speak of. I expected that when I got into hospice that, you know, when I went out and started working with patient families in the field, questions would come up naturally, and then I could just go and look in the, you know, the proverbial hospice libraries and look in the literature and, you know, so on and so forth and find the answers to questions. Um, what I found was, you know, like Mother Hubbard, I went to the cupboard and the cupboard was bare. There was nothing there. And so that motivated me, uh, really, to, to start digging. 
after I began to figure a lot of this stuff out, you know, what was happening and why and what's normal and what's not normal and what you should do and what you shouldn't do, I just started writing some stuff out and, and handing it out to my patients and families in a, in a, as a pamphlet. And I don't think it really even had a name at that time. But then later on, as I began to think about it, I came up with the name of Crossing the Creek. And, and what that has to do with is when people get close to actually leaving the physical realm or crossing over or dying or however you want to put it, they begin to perceive doing that in some fashion that is peculiar to their history. Now, I'm from a farm and grew up playing in creeks, and so, you know, a creek is a natural boundary, and so it would be kind of natural in my mind when I get close to dying to perceive that crossing as crossing a creek. Now, for other people, like my wife was born in Philly, so, you know, she would she would think of it in terms peculiar to her. Uh, one old guy that I uh, took care of had always had mules and been a lover of mules, and he was telling me how he would be riding his mules along a canyon wall and he was trying to figure out how to get uh, to the other to the other side of the canyon and um, another woman uh, described uh, as her husband who had died I don't know four or five years before her would come and pick her up in a in a uh, old truck and she would get in the truck and they would ride until they came to this bridge but then she knew that if she crossed that bridge then then she would be leaving the earth you know so she would get out and he would go back across and then Eventually, she did go with them. Um, you know, it's even more common ones, like the, the, the Jordan River, crossing the Jordan River. That's just a metaphor for the same thing. As large as it is, the Earth is a finite container. It is, and, uh, you know, if, if uh, there's still... Uh, people coming in and none going out, then it very quickly uh, gets overloaded. In fact, it's very close to being overloaded now. If you take a balloon and just keep blowing it up and blowing it up and blowing it up, it finally just bursts, you know, so there has to be, a, you know, an intake and an, and an, and an output, uh, a flow-through of uh, consciousness coming into this realm to experience, to experience it. And so then the question comes up, well, why? What's, you know, what's the, what's the point of that? If you ask people, uh, you know, what's the purpose of your life? What did you come here for? You know, it's, it's mostly they don't have much of an answer for that. And what's the purpose of life? Well, very often the purpose of life in most people's minds consists of really nothing more than to just live another day. And when you think about that, that is really more sophisticated than the theology of a cancer cell. You know, a cancer cell really has no point in life other than to just grow and live, you know, and live another day. Um, whereas heart cells and lung cells and bone cells all have a purpose, you know, whereas a cancer cell really does not. So, uh, you know, we really should start instead of thinking that, you know, being in a body in the physical realm is good and dying and not being in, in a body in the physical realm is bad and a failure, you know, that, that's really wrong thinking. Um, what we should be thinking is, what did I come here for? What did I come here to do? What did I come here to learn? Why am I here? And if I don't know what I came here for, how would I know when I was finished? Right now we're, we're living in a physical realm and our consciousness or the little piece of it we have is attached to a particular body. And it's very difficult to imagine what it would be like to exist without a body. You know, when I was actually dealing with dying uh, people all the time, I would talk to them quite a lot about their dreams because... Um, they would begin to switch from a focus on the physical world to more of a focus on a non-physical world, which would appear to them in, you know, for lack of better terms, dreams. And plus, when you're dying, you begin to go into a, a sleep-wake uh, cycle of that's more like an, an infant. You know, a baby, if you've ever had a baby or a uh, 
you know, raised one, you would know that they sleep a little while and then they're awake a little while and they sleep a little while and they're awake a little while and that just goes on around the clock. And as you get further into the dying process, that, you know, you revert back to that sleeping pattern. You know, awake, sleep, awake, sleep, awake, sleep. The focus between the, the worlds of the physical world and the non-physical world begins to get a little obscure. One guy who was in that particular stage, I was asking him about that, and I was asking him, uh, how do you tell which reality you're in, you know, the, the physical or the non-physical? And he thought, and he said, you know, it's hard. <laughs> and I said, well, which one do you think you're in now? And he said, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I said, are you feeling any pain right now? And he said, um, yeah. And I said, well, now, there's a clue. This episode of Too Much Information is called Stages on Life's Way. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, Kara Oler, and Laura Mayer. Special thanks to Noah Apple and Dan Simon. It featured Michael Holmes, Barry Gifford, Susan Anderson, Joachim Garf, and Tim Kreider. A version of the Kierkegaard piece was originally produced for the Danish podcast Third Ear, thanks to Pike Malinowski and Tim Hinman. Too Much Information is finally a podcast. You can find it on iTunes or subscribe through your RSS reader and download all the past episodes. And for even more Too Much Information, visit the TMI show page at wfmu.org.